Today we continue a series of discussions about the basics of Marxism, a method for understanding and changing the world used by many of the great organizers, activists, scholars, educators, and revolutionaries in modern history. This week we continue our multi-part series on agriculture under capitalism with a special focus on the hunger crisis in the United States. How is it possible that in the richest country in the history of the world, tens of millions struggle to access something as basic as food? We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Deepening unemployment, a looming wave of evictions, massive and widening inequality. There's no denying it. Capitalism is in crisis and capitalism is the crisis. We are happy to have Professor Richard Wolff join us again for our regular weekly segment where we talk about the biggest stories related to the economy, the state of the working class and the crimes of big business. I'm your host, Brian Becker. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com forward slash the socialist program we appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to this show richard wolf is the co-founder of the organization democracy at work and the author of many books the latest being the sickness is the system when capitalism fails to save us from pandemics or itself. You can check out his work and be sure you do at rdwolf.com. That's rdwolf.com. Professor Wolf, welcome back. Thank you, Brian. Glad to be here. Thank you. We want to talk about hunger. We want to talk about the rising tide of hunger. The new census report that came out just in the last week shows that while hunger is decreasing, all the sort of rosy headlines, hunger on the decrease in America, then you read the first paragraph and you say, it's on the decrease compared to where it was six months ago, but it's actually worse. There's more what's now called food insecurity, a euphemism for hunger, one of those feel-good words, food insecurity rather than hungry people. In this, the richest country in the world, it's actually worse now than it was in March 2020 when COVID struck. So that's one part of this story. There's another part, and if you read the Wall Street Journal, this would be the part that tells you about how agribusiness is doing and how private equity firms are entering agriculture and basically becoming dominant players in agriculture. And these are equity firms, private equity firms that have no background at all in agriculture, but are becoming dominant. And I want to talk about that. There's a major article in the Wall Street Journal that we want to walk through with our audience and talk about that. But then, you know, Richard, as I was preparing to talk to you today, I went to the store. I went to Whole Foods. I bought two apples, organic apples. We talked about organic food. It's better food. It's pricier food. 
So my two apples cost me $2.40. And I thought, wow, that's a lot of money for two apples. And when I got home, I looked at the a little bit more about the sticker. And the apples actually come from New Zealand. Now, this isn't really apple season yet in the United States, but I'm buying apples, two apples for $2.50 from New Zealand. It obviously costs a lot more to ship an apple, to ship an apple from New Zealand on an ocean liner to a warehouse, to a truck, to Whole Foods. It costs a lot more than $1.25. Somehow, those other costs were not included in the price. Anyway, you know, we always talk about from farm to table, you know, we should eat locally. The fact of the matter is the only apples at the store today were from New Zealand or Argentina. Anyway, it's these hidden costs, but in addition to the actual price of all of that shipping, there's the question of energy use. Like those ocean liners are powered. We use an enormous amount of fossil fuel so I can get an apple from New Zealand. It just doesn't make sense. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, well, let me first address this question of food insecurity or hunger. That usually is a concept of not, quote, unquote, having enough to eat. That is literally you ask people whether they were able to put a meal in front of their children seven days a week or not, whether insecure about where the next meal would come from. And that gets you some piece of the information, but it's by far only some piece. It is light years from a whole understanding of the disaster of food in U.S. capitalism today. To give you another piece, and there we don't have enough time to go through all of it, but to give you another piece, the United States has one of the worst problems of obesity in the industrialized world. We are overweight as a society. And one of the key reasons for that overweight has to do with poverty, with people who don't have enough money to even imagine spending two and a half dollars for two organic apples from New Zealand. They are the folks who, to assuage their hunger, spend their life drinking cheap soda pop accompanied by immense bags of the chips whose names I won't mention, but we all know since every supermarket in the country has a shelf or two devoted to nothing else, and on and on. Processed meat, if they get any meat at all, bread that has long ago lost whatever nutrition it might have had, and so on. When you add the obesity, which is a hunger problem at its root, you can see that the level of dysfunction in what we feed our people is grotesque. One more example, and I'll stop, otherwise I'll take the whole time of this interview. We now have a two-class food system. We didn't used to have that quite. Now it's formalized. It's the organic versus the, I believe the euphemism is, conventional. In one 
we are putting into our bodies food that is organically modified, is nuked in various ways, that has been raised with pesticides of one kind or another, chemical fertilizers manufactured out of petroleum in one manner or another, and that has notorious damaging effects on our health, on our bodies, side effects, direct effects, and so on. Or you can go to specialized markets or specialized portions of our markets where you can spend way more money, which the mass of people cannot afford, to get good food that is at least less contaminated by the pesticides and the fertilizers and the genetically modified and so forth foods. I mean, so that if you're rich enough so that you can afford this without it impacting your ability to pay for school or to pay for your children or to pay for your medical bills. I mean, we are subjecting people to pressures which make them forced to eat inferior, dangerous food left and right. So let's put together those who don't have enough, those who are obese because they're eating the wrong things, and that those who are forced by financial constraint to put dangerous things into their body as food. You add those up, and as I said, there are more, but I won't go into it, and then you begin to get an idea of what our problem is. It's been this way for decades. The literature on everything I've just talked about, obesity, inappropriate genetic modifications, the dangers of pesticide. Rachel Carson told us about that literally half a century ago. Nothing has been done. Not anything to fundamentally alter. Yes, here or there, little cosmetic reforms. But the basic story I told you just now, I could have told you 50 years ago, pretty much the same. Ironically, the obesity has gotten markedly worse in this country over that time. And I think the bottom line, as I say to you so often, and that is appropriate to say on something that calls itself the socialist program, is a profit-driven capitalism. People who make food in this country in most cases, particularly if they're organized as capitalist corporations, will tell you honestly that they're in the business to make money. When they things like say things like profit is our bottom line, that's what that means. If they're organized as a business and they solicit people to buy shares in their company or to invest in them, the promise they give to those people is, we're going to return profit to you. We're going to make this a profitable investment. And the way to do that is to maximize the difference between the cost of producing the food item and the revenue they can charge you for it. And that's what they're there to do. And if they can get you to buy it by putting more sugar and fat than would be healthy for you, that's what they're going to do. They will explain to you, we are not in the health business. We are not a medical company. We are not doctors. We are profit-making capitalists. And we're going to put in the food 
whatever it profit us to do. And we're going to arrange where we're going to produce it and how we're going to produce it and how we're going to package it and how we're going to advertise it according to what is most profitable. So the real question we ought to be debating in this country is this. Do we want the food that nurtures our babies, our children, our husbands, wives, cousins, lovers, whatever? Do we want it to be produced by people whose first concern is to give us an adequate, healthy, nutritious diet or people who are trying to make a buck? If we leave it in the hands of people who are trying to make a buck, or in our capitalist system, to profit themselves, then we get what we've just reviewed. And if that's not acceptable to you, your problem isn't with this or that food producer, or with this or that origin of our food. Your problem is with capitalism and allowing a capitalist economic system to be in charge of something as fundamental as our diet. Richard, before Christmas of last year, before Christmas, in the middle of COVID, before any vaccination, there were at least 35 million people, these are official statistics, who faced hunger in the U.S. That figure includes more than 10 million children. So in addition to having non-nutritious food, food that's you know, loaded with sugar and, you know, non-complex carbohydrates that lead to obesity. In addition to that, people literally didn't have the money to go to the store. And so they were hungry and their kids were hungry. And the food banks in the United States were off the chart. I'm looking at a statement from Brian Singleton, executive director of Action Pact a social service organization that operates five food banks in rural Georgia. Rural Georgia, he said the need for food assistance because of COVID had quadrupled. That was within, you know, six months. Quote, we've had food distributions where we've literally had hundreds of vehicles lined up for food. We live in a food desert anyway, we're a very rural area. It was just exaggerating what we experience on a normal basis. Now the census report comes out, and I'm, I'm looking at the census report, and we're going to be doing more assessments of it because the census reveals a lot. It doesn't reveal a lot, too, but there's a lot that you can learn from the census. When I turn on NPR, which is presumably you know, a public-owned or government-owned station, even though it's loaded with corporate advertising, in fact. When I listen to NPR, they're talking about the census from the point of view of redistricting, what it means for Congress, the struggles around gerrymandering. These are, of course, important. But they don't have the focus on the fact that the census reveals that these tens of millions of Americans are still hungry, are still in hunger. And even though it's not as bad as it was six months ago, it's worse than it was 14 months ago. Now, it seems to me that that's just like an unconscionable way that the media, and I would include NPR here, 
is not focusing with gigantic screaming, alarming headlines that say to the whole country, emergency, everybody, emergency. We have 35 million people in the United States, 10 million of whom are children who are are hungry in this, the richest country in the world. Then I look again at the Wall Street Journal, and this is their focus, of course, how a billion-dollar farm tech startup stumbled and then revamped during the same time period, during the same past 18 months. I want to read a couple paragraphs to you, Richard, and get you to comment. When a Boston-based tech startup showed John Creighton one of the best prices for his corn he'd seen in years, the farmer signed up to sell 75 bushels through its network. They had a great sales pitch, said Mr. Creighton, who farms in Illinois and dealt with the company called Indigo, and he's been doing business with them since 2019. Now, Indigo is formed by a private equity firm, the same private equity firm that not only was not involved in agriculture, but was previously not involved in biotechnology for healthcare products, including pharmaceuticals. But they're the company that began Moderna, which then, of course, with the government support, with NIH's support, became one of the three companies to provide initially the vaccine for COVID. Since 2009, nearly $23 billion has been invested globally in new companies using technology in agriculture. Indigo has taken a big portion of that, according to the research firm Ag Funder, including more than $500 million announced last year from investors, including FedEx and the Alaska Permanent Fund. Founded by flagship pioneering, the venture capital firm that formed vaccine developer Moderna, Indigo started in 2013. It's changed its name. It provides the seeds. It provides the genetically modified microbes for seeds. All of these farmers are now working through Indigo, which promised them that they would link them directly to the buyer's who would pay the highest prices for grain or for corn. In other words, where they could go outside of the monopoly corporation domination of ADM or Cargill or the other, you know, there's 10 big agribusiness firms, really about five, that they used to be basically functioning as subcontractors for. But Indigo promised them, we're going to link you directly to buyers. You're going to be able to get the best possible price. And so this huge number of grain and corn farmers did just that. And now, of course, they learn that the promise of them having competition, of them having alternatives, of them breaking free from the monopolies, none of it's true. And in fact, the monopolies are doing the same thing now that the tech startup companies did. And eventually, these tech startups will be, I would guess, either bought up or driven into bankruptcy. But again, let's just talk about how all of this is done not to feed the hungry, not to feed anybody. It's really all about profit. They could be selling a pharmaceutical product. They could be selling houses. They could be selling microbes for seeds. It doesn't matter to them. And yet this is how agriculture is being reorganized right now in America. 
This situation reminds me of the phrase chickens coming home to roost in the sense that when a small capitalist is in agriculture, the small capitalist is focused on making profits too. If they're a farmer and if they have some other kinds of feelings about the land and about the craft of being in agriculture, that may intrude upon their profit-making focus a bit. They feel for their neighbors, they feel for the land, they have an organic connection, you might say. And so, yes, they do things for profit because that's the way the system works. They do have the bank loans they have to pay back. They do have the machinery that they have to pay off. And so they have to be concerned about making money. And that shapes decisions on the farm. But these other factors also do, and you can appeal to those sometimes, and people will make decisions that they don't want to make really bad food. So they're not going to use that chemical. Yeah, it'll get them more bushels of corn per acre, but you know they know that that comes out of a laboratory and who knows what else it might do. But the minute you get the normal development of a capitalist system in which the many compete with one another, the winners of the competition thrive and buy out the losers who die so that many companies become few, which is the pattern in literally every capitalist industry. When you get a few that are big, they become more and more dependent sooner or later on credit from banks, on shareholders who provide them with the money that help them win the competition with all of those that are now gone. Then you begin to see that the connection to the land is destroyed. The people who take over are now driven by the profit motive and very little else. And you're seeing it now when venture capitalists who have no connection to the land become the owners of the farms. If I'm not mistaken, the largest single landowner in the United States right now is Bill Gates, a man who's famous for his techno innovations in Microsoft, but to my knowledge has no particular expertise, no particular feeling, no particular relationship with food or agriculture, he's investing his billions in land because it's a good investment. And what that means is it pays a hefty return. So the money he's given to the people he gives money to, they know they have to return a profit to him or else he's going to take his money back. So now throughout the whole system from top to bottom, The single overwhelming objective is profit. And whatever shreds of connection to land, to farms, to the local community, to the relationship between your customer and you, the provider of something so crucial as food, all of that disappears. And you have the naked, simple leftover, money, profit. And so when the decision is to be made, what kind of machinery do we use? You pick the machinery that's most profitable, not the machinery that does the least damage to the land, the least side effects in polluting the countryside. You haven't got the time or the interest to learn about that, let alone take it into account.
You have to make the best profit. Otherwise, your competitor farmer will be doing it. So you're not, not able to go in that direction. And then when you sell your grain, you, of course, have given up any control over what's done with it. And if it is mixed with dangerous quantities of cheap sugar, refined sugar, not organic sugar, chemicals of all kind to suggest a barbecue flavor or something else where nobody knows what else those chemicals may do, and on and on and on, the decisions are always governed by one bottom line, the profit. That's what the system does, and we pay the consequences. We're not healthy, we're overweight, we're hungry, and meanwhile, the same companies that are working on bringing the costs down are working on bringing the price up. And I want to say a word about that because it's a very capitalist institution called advertising. You can make the worst conceivable food and then pay some athlete or some actress or some celebrity of any kind to promote the thing, to say wonderful things about it, to sit for photographs showing what wonderful good times they're having with their friends, imbibing whatever the drink is, or eating whatever the food is. And you can get people then to want that, to want that happiness that seems to be written on the face of that famous athlete whose work you admire, and so on and so on. This is a system that now rips us off first in what it produces, and then in what it charges us for producing it. And none of this is necessary. We've just been told in recent weeks that the war in Afghanistan, which the United States lost, cost the United States somewhere in the neighborhood of two to two and a half trillion dollars. A tiny fraction of that could have made our people able to eat healthy, nutritious food. And I don't think there's an American listening to this who wouldn't rather see the money that was used to bomb the bejesus out of Afghanistan, a small amount of it could have been used to take those 10 million children listed as hungry and get them out of that category, get them a different life. And then all of us could have had the benefit of not living in a society where a significant portion of our fellow citizens are either sick or hungry from the quality and the quantity of the food they are forced to live on. Yeah, that's extremely important. You know, when you add the bill, the price tag of the care, the medical care for veterans and disability payments for veterans, because several thousand were killed. I'm talking about the U.S. troops. Hundreds of thousands of Afghans died, but several thousand U.S. military personnel died. But the signature wound in Afghanistan was the the triple amputee because of advances in medicine. A lot of the folks who would have died, say, in Vietnam 50 years ago, they're saved now, but they're saved missing two legs, missing an arm, missing an eye. When you add the estimated cost, these are government statistics, the estimated cost for Afghan veteran military care and disability 
that's going to be another $2 trillion. So we're looking at a price tag for Afghanistan of 4 to $4.5 trillion. And when you think about it, we did a show yesterday, Professor Wolf, the Taliban offered to surrender in November 2001. They only requested amnesty. They were completely dispersed and defeated. But Donald Rumsfeld said, we don't negotiate surrenders, which is unusual since the U.S. has always negotiated surrenders. But the, the arrogance and hubris of the Bush administration and American politicians writ large we don't surrender. So 20 years later, $5 trillion later, hundreds of thousands of dead people later. And yeah, it's a complete disaster, except a lot of the capitalist corporations, they did quite well from the Afghan war. It wasn't so bad. It was a boon, in fact, because that $5 trillion, and it's certainly the $2.5 trillion that's spent on the war itself, all of that goes to contractors. All of it goes to the same capitalist corporations, and many of them owned by the same banks or now owned by the same private equity firms. Anyway, a terrible indictment of our current system. I want to say one last thing about the Indigo Company, and this is a real kicker. At the end of 2018, Indigo converted former Toyota Motor Corporation offices in downtown Memphis into a complex called Indigo Plaza to house its grain and get this carbon business. It hired more than 120 salespeople, many of whom previously sold medical products. Indigo paid employees five-figure quarterly bonuses for signing up farmers to go to the marketplace. Many of these people, most of them were not familiar at all with the agricultural world, but they had the tools to sell this product to these farmers. And in spring, Richard, this will be our, my last point, get your final comment. In spring 2019, Indigo announced its most ambitious venture so far, measuring the carbon that farm fields withdraw from the atmosphere and hold in the soil creating carbon credits and selling them to companies looking to reduce their carbon footprint. Again, a new commodity. The farmers, by planting, reduce carbon emissions, and Indigo helps market the carbon emission reduction to the polluters who are expanding their carbon emissions because they can make a lot of money and that's how we get to carbon neutrality when, in fact, of course, the same companies are emitting the same amounts of carbon. In other words, really a dagger at the, at the whole idea of climate control or mitigation of climate catastrophe. Anyway, we'll leave that and have you make your final comments. Well, the irony of this is that the whole movement to deal with climate change and the effect of carbon dioxide and so on in the climate was subverted by subordinating it to capitalism, that the only way to solve this problem was to create a market in commodities that could be produced. And this was thought to be great wisdom. It's idiotic. It's subordinating the urgency of saving this climate once again to capitalism, just like we subordinated the food in our bodies to capitalism. And it's having all the perverse effects 
that you just pointed out, not dealing with the problem at all, but actually enabling farmers to now give a free pass to the polluters, the opposite of what anybody would have intended. But that's the problem. We live in a society that is constantly being undone by a capitalist system. It refuses to question, to challenge, and debate. And my view, and I say this as someone who's come to this only recently, is that we are in the process of observing and living through capitalism's self-destruction because it can't break enough to ask itself the question, are we done with this system? Do we need to do something better? And my answer, in case that question is left hanging, is, oh boy, we have to do better. We can do better. And shame on us for not having figured that out long ago. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Be sure to check out his work at rdwolff.com. That's spelled R-D-W-O-L-F-F.com. You're listening to The Socialist Program. We'll be back tomorrow with Colonel Ann Wright, a State Department official who resigned in protest over the U.S. invasion of Iraq. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.